Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Natalia Pinzon-Jimenez, and welcome to Farmers Build Fire Resilience, a special podcast series brought to you by the Farmer Campus, the Community Alliance with Family Farms, and the Farmers Guild. In this series, you'll travel with us to the fields and back in order to hear stories from farmers, ranchers, and community members impacted by increasingly devastating wildfires in the Western United States. We hope these stories of loss, rebuilding, and resilience will help us face a future with fire together. Today, in episode one, we'll hear from David Cooper of Oak Hill Farm in Sonoma County, California. So I'm David Cooper. I'm the farm manager at Oak Hill Farm of Sonoma in Glen Ellen. I've been here for 12 years, nine years as the farm manager, three years as the assistant farm manager. Uh, we grow about 20 acres of diverse crops, flowers, vegetables, fruits, greenery, lots of perennial greens. We grow a lot of brassicas, a lot of tomatoes, lettuce, peppers, corn, flowers, field cut, annual flowers, a bunch of perennial flowers, peonies, lilac, lavender, fruit trees, everything, apples, pears, plums, peaches, persimmons, pomegranates, figs, cucumbers, and melons. Pretty much if you can grow it here, we, we do grow it. You mentioned diversity. The combination of flowers and fruits and vegetables seems like it would lend itself to biodiversity, but is that a deliberate effort here? It is. It's, it's deliberate for not only diversity of, of crops and the environment, but also for labor-wise. So we're not doing the same thing. You get to, if you're bending over for a while doing something, then you get to stand up and do something, and it just it makes the day go a lot faster too, not picking the not picking the same thing all day. And of course it helps for for pest pressure, for crop rotation, for pollination to have the flowers with the with the fruit. It certainly helps to keep pollinators here to keep beneficial insects around. No fields larger than two acres, so mostly we have lots of little one acre fields spread around with, with a lot of diversity of wildlands mixed in too. So we have brings a lot of a lot of value to have that kind of diversity. We don't have to plant hedgerows. Um, and windbreaks and stuff because we have we have natural ones. Obviously, people have cared for this land for a long time. For a long time, yeah. I mean, going all the way back to Native Americans, we find artifacts all the time. Um, and so he bought it before sort of the chemical revolution and all chemicals came to agriculture. And so because he didn't believe in that, as far as we know, this land has basically never seen chemicals. There's lots of little creeks on the property and they all feed eventually into Sonoma Creek and then down into the bay. So trying to keep the keep the chemicals, keep the erosion, keep everything out of the out of the streams as much as possible. And you can see our neighbors, I mean, on either side there, they've cut up the hillside as, as steep as they're allowed to go and planted grapes. To be able to protect that, to to not fence the property, to have wildlife able to move. I mean, wildlife corridor, this is one of the, the main corridors in this valley. I think it's one of only two or three properties left that aren't fenced. Um, so wildlife are able to move through. They go under Highway 12. We have, um, there's actually underpasses under Highway 12 for wildlife that they use to be able to get over into the into the regional park, the state park, the developmental center, and up over in the snow mountains. So. so what's your favorite part of the job? We like being outside, interacting with plants. We love, I mean, we love the fact that there's all the wildlife. I can't imagine farming or just... A farm is just a farm. It's just 200 acres of, of nothing but crops. We enjoy watching the birds, watching the other animals that come down. I mean, listening to it, there's just so much. 
it's a bird's paradise here. Tell me about the fire. What was it like here? Terrifying. Certainly when we got the call at, at two in the morning that there was a fire up the road from us, about five miles up the road in the canyon. Nuns Canyon. I mean, the wind was the wind had been whipping since I don't know what time it started. Sometime late afternoon, by five or six, it started, and you know, I went outside before bed, probably around nine o'clock, and got hit with a gust that was coming from the direction that it never blows from. It just it felt really weird. It was hot. We went to bed, tried to sleep. wasn't I mean, We didn't really sleep. It was howling all night, and then yeah, about two in the morning, got a phone call from someone who lives on this side who'd heard from. Her sister-in-law across the street that she had gone out to check on her bees at about midnight because it was windy, so windy she wanted to make sure that her hives seemed to get blown over. And they sit up a little bit and she was able to see the glow in the distance. And so she called her sister-in-law who called me and said, you need to get out of the house. And so we got up and we were in bed, but it was smoky in the house and you could see the glow and the wind was still whipping. And so we, no one knew anything. You know, we had no no official alerts. We were just going on what, what she told us, which was we needed to leave. We didn't know how, how imminent the threat was. So uh, my housemate and I, we each loaded up what we could, filled our cars in about 15 minutes. And then we each had a car full and we reached a driver, so there was not much more we could do. And so we left. We came to the side of the farm. It lost power shortly after that, which means we basically lost water to the farm. We lose our ability to pump and lose, lose power. And so we were just over here trying to get, I mean, there's no information still. And then about six in the morning, the sheriff's deputy came in and said that we needed to leave. They were, they were evacuating the area. Um, and at that point, it was a huge glow. I mean, the, the sky was just completely lit up on, on that side. So we left. We went to a friend's house in town and stayed there until probably about noon or so trying to check social media trying to find any information we, i mean we're still at this point other than the sheriff deputy coming through so we, we had no other information no one told us there was nothing um so we went there and of course people calling and texting us trying to find out what was going on asking if we were okay and we did all that and then the wind started dying down and we couldn't sit there any longer so we came back up here um and at that point there was a roadblock at, at the drone um, which is about half a mile south of the farm and we could see smoke in everyone that we didn't know but so we we're just we're not the type to just sit around and, and let things happen so well i don't know if we should record but <laughs> we jumped some fences and we came onto the property and um to get around the roadblock we went through a neighbor a neighbor's vineyard let us over and so we jumped a couple of fences came over and at that point we moved all of our equipment that was in these wooden barns, um, I mean, old, old barns, so they would burn quickly if anything happened. We moved all equipment into the irrigated fields, tractors, forklifts, trucks. And then as we were leaving, the fire engine was coming in and we talked to the two guys who were in there. They had been fighting on the, on the other side of the farm and that's when we pretty much figured out we probably lost our house. Um, we basically thought we lost everything on the north side of the farm. There's a barn over there, there's our house, there's a bunch of outbuildings, shop. And so we left basically figuring we lost everything over there. Went back into town to our friend's house and then can't remember when I had it. Maybe we had all of the product at that point. At one point we we pulled everything out of our um, our walk-in cooler as well because we had no power. Didn't know when we'd have power again. And so we took everything down to to a neighboring farm who had space in his walk-in. The first few days access was easier and then access got really difficult. Um, bunch of county sheriff's deputies came in a bunch of oakland police um 
National Guard, so you just you really couldn't get in anymore. So um, I actually left. I went to Davis for a few days to a friend's parents' house. A bunch of us who were evacuated went there and um, were there for a few days. Obviously, I was stuck getting trying to get all my money into the bank, trying to figure out unemployment for my workers because we had payroll that that week, and so clearly weren't going to pay anyone. Um, and so I was dealing with all that for a few days, replacing some of the stuff that I knew I'd lost and needed immediately. Um, and then I came back. I guess I was back by Sunday over a nap at my sister's house. Um, at that point, we were still, I mean, we were still a week away from technically being allowed back on the property. Um, but that following week, I guess it was about Tuesday, we were able to get back on through, a, through an escort from the county, from the Ag Commissioner. And so we came back on and, and started, yeah, the process of trying to get water. First thing was trying to get water and power back to the, back to the property. Um, because we had a bunch, I mean, it was October, so a bunch of crops in the field and it was 90, 90 plus degrees and super dry because of the fire. I mean, humidity was probably 10%. And so um, trying to get, trying to get power and water back as quickly as we could. So if there were flare ups, we had water and I mean, this was, things were still burning. Everything north of us was still burning. This hillside was still, it was certainly still smoldering. And I don't remember how actively it was burning at that point. We get mostly burnt through by, by the weekend. But yeah, so that's what we were doing. Trying to collect PVC and parts to fix water systems and trying to get all that back up and running. How long did it take you to get the water system repaired? Because probably that, I think we worked on it most of that week doing stuff because you'd come in and we only had access, we were allowed in, so we got an escort in and then we were allowed to be here all day, but if we left past the roadblock, we couldn't get back in. So it's basically come in, assess, measure, whatever, figure out what you need, go out in the evening, go collect the next morning, come back in with the escort, do work all day, leave again, figure out what you need. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of coming and going. And then but by the middle of that week, by probably about Wednesday or Thursday, um, we had a bunch of crops in the field that we really wanted to harvest because we didn't know when we were going to have water because we still had no power. Um, so we didn't know. I mean, PG&E was working on, on power at that point, but there was no estimate for, for getting power back. So we came in and harvested a couple thousand pounds of, of products um, working with, with Feed Sonoma. To, they took all that product for us and were able to distribute it. So that we were also working on that. So we spent two, spent one or two days harvesting and then the other day is working on the working on the irrigation. So we pretty much spent that week trying to and then by I believe we had power back on by Saturday night or Sunday night, which would have been almost two weeks. We were almost two weeks without power. And even then we didn't have water entirely entirely restored. We were still without our big our big well. So we were just working on on a small well. A fifth of our capacity if even that. So after you got the water and power back, what next? So we closed, obviously we're closed. We were completely closed, aside from those sales to Feed Sonoma that we're just trying to move product that we didn't want to lose. Um, the store was closed for, I believe, about a month we closed it. We were missing farmer's markets. We weren't obviously able to go to the city. I missed three weeks of deliveries. I can't remember, two or three weeks. So how did CAF help? So CAF had a huge fundraiser during the fires. So the CAF is an application, so filling out the application letting them know what we lost. They were very generous in their, in their donation to to me and also to Zeb and to some of the other farmers in the area who lost who lost stuff in the fires. And then they also 
Evan worked something out where Cap was able to use some of that money to buy product and then through feed distribute it to people who were preparing meals for first responders or people who were in evacuation zones. And so that's where a lot of that product that we harvested during the fires went, was through feed to um, chefs and restaurants that were preparing food for um, for evacuees and, and first responders and, and Cap used some of that, that fundraiser money to, to do that as well. So able to give us income and then also able to feed people with quality food. Everyone was so generous, but it was very disjointed in how to, there was no one place you could go to. And a lot of it was word of mouth. And this went on for how long? How oh, months, months and months. And you never knew because FEMA originally said that everyone was going to get, if you lost a house and had no insurance, you were going to get 20 some thousand dollars and none of that ended up happening because FEMA decided it was too much and just, they weren't going to give that much to everyone, so everyone got way less. Um, but you just never knew, so you're always chasing every lead you heard about. So you lost the house, the workshop, the personal belongings. Yep. A couple of tractors. And I imagine not all of that has been replaced. No. What's, no. Not even close. What's the plan going forward? Oh, who knows? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not stuff you replace right away. I mean, a, a farm workshop that's been there for probably since the 50s or 60s, it's just full of so many things that you just acquire. Um, that some people would say is junk, but it's so valuable to a farm. But it's just, it's bolts and it's pieces and it's broken down parts. And so broken down to something and then you can go and you can scavenge parts off it when something else breaks. You just don't know what you need until you need it. And that was always the place to go when you needed something. So we've rebuilt the, the workshop. It took a year for that. So that happened last October. The end of October, we finished that. So it was about a year to get that um, rebuilt. So we have a shop now. It's just the time of spending the time to refill it and figure out what we need. And it just takes time. I mean, like my life, it was 20 years of stuff that you know, I'm not going to replace at all. A lot of it it's just it takes time to go out and find. I mean, most of my stuff was, was antiques or one-offs or whatever else most of it wasn't just going to a big store and buy it off the shelf. She's just not going to replace right away. And same thing with the farm. I mean, we replaced, we replaced the one tractor that we really needed and we're slowly replacing stuff. But insurance is also tricky and just, I mean, there's never enough. You certainly don't get enough money for what it costs to replace today. It's a slow process to, to rebuild. So and farms don't have a lot of money. It's not like we're, we're bringing in a whole bunch of money that we have to just disposable income to spend on stuff. So. It's not something you just recover from. In a year or two years, it's going to take probably a decade at least to, to really get back to. So you replace the most important things, and then when you have a little bit more money, you replace. So how did the fire change you personally? I mean, you realize all that stuff is just stuff, first of all. It could all be taken away at any, at any time. The biggest thing was how the community came together. That's, you really realize how important community is and those how important those relationships are and that that's not taken away by, by the fire. My friend's parents opened their house and opened their hearts to us. Having calf that community that came together, I mean, while the fires were still raging to, to fundraise and the stuff is just stuff in the end. But that community is is irreplaceable. So having all those people just, just come together was it was pretty special. That many people wanting to do whatever they they possibly could to help out. So as you look ahead a little bit, 
talk to me about climate change. Who knows? There's all this talk about doing this and doing I mean, what do you do? How do you prepare? Complete unknown is really, I mean, that house that I was living in had been there since the late 1800s. Fires had burnt through before. The house had always made it. Diversity is obviously one of the huge things we do. I mean, building our soils like always, trying to be drought tolerant, trying to be heat tolerant, trying to be, but also have to be ready for downpours. I mean, we got 12 inches of rain in 40 hours this winter. We've never seen that much rain. There wasn't that much water on the property. How do you prepare for that when you don't really know? You've never seen that. You've never seen 12 inches of rain in 40 hours and what it does. You don't know what the property, exactly how it's going to respond. So you just try to do the things that have the ground covered, have cover crops planted, and have your ditches and creeks clear. And same thing for fire season. You take red flag warning seriously. You, you try to do the stuff that they tell you to do. But even the you talk to all the firefighters and they said all of our training, we weren't prepared for a fire like that. I mean, they've never seen anything like it. And they prepare for the most extreme they expect to see. And then they see something that's beyond what they've ever seen. You try to be ready to, to handle what comes at you. But it's, I mean, farming's hard enough without all of that. I mean, diversity is, is obviously the biggest thing we try to do. If we were reliant on one crop, I'd be much more, much more afraid if I were a grape grower and had just that one crop that I have to, that I have to bring to, to production every year. If we lose, we can't lose everything, but if we lose one crop, then usually something else is, is doing well. And we just try to be resilient. And again, diversity is, is the most resilience you can have. Well, that's all for today's episode of Stories from the Field. Thanks for listening. And thank you, David Cooper, for joining us today. Join us again next week and we'll hear from more farmers. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't already enrolled in our online course for farmers, Farmers Build Fire Resilience, stop by our website at farmercampus.com and claim your seat now.